Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. We're starting a new chapter today. And though it has been a while, we return to our series, our exegetical series through Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, I, as you know, with a lot of things I'm juggling, I, I needed extra time to get through the commentaries and um, work through all of the Hebrew translation. Don't be impressed with that. I use my Bible software significantly uh, to, make, to work through it all. Uh, and I was going to just do the first few verses, but as I looked at the context, I realized it has to be in the whole chapter. And then as I was looking at commentaries and considering the text, I realized it, it needs to go through chapter 11 of chapter 10, uh, excuse me, verse 11 of chapter 10. So we have a large selection here today. I would remind you we often have a much shorter one, although we did do all of Deuteronomy 8 last time we were here. But we're going to go Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 11, as it really does all go together. It can be challenging, really, where to ever pick, start, and let up. But uh, I think you'll see this is a, a bit of its own pericope, so to speak. And uh, it's, it's similar to chapter 8, where it's telling us to remember and not forget. And in per particularly, remember things about ourselves, and not forget what we need to know about ourselves, and also not forget God and what we need to know about Him. And uh, He gives a pretty powerful punch today, but He also gives us a pretty powerful Savior today. So please uh, work with me through the whole text, and I'll thank you for your listening, as it'll be a, a meatier one than we've had for a while. Deuteronomy 9, verses 1, all the way through the chapter to chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Uh, before I do continue, let me remind you, actually, after the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's law in chapter five, we are now going through Moses uh, preaching and teaching through each of the Ten Commandments in great detail. We're still in the first commandment. Uh, have no other gods before me. OK, Deuteronomy nine through Deuteronomy 10, verse 11. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face. So that shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord hath said unto thee. Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee saying, for my righteousness, the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Remember and forget not 
How thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until ye came unto this place, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, ye provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. When I was gone up into the mount to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant, which the Lord made with you, then I abode in the mount forty days and forty nights. And I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made them a molten image. Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them, and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mount, and the mount burned with fire, and the two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, ye had sinned against the Lord your God, and had made you a molten calf. Ye had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I took the two tables and cast them out of my two hands, and brake them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and forty nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which ye sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also the same time. And I took your sin, the calf which ye had made, and burnt it with fire, and stamped it, and ground it very small, even until it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mount. And at Taborah, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava, ye provoked the Lord to wrath. Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you. Then ye rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and ye believed him not, nor hearkened to his voice. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Thus I fell down before the Lord forty days and forty nights, as I fell down at the first because the Lord had said he would destroy you. 
I prayed therefore unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people and thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look not unto the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin. Lest the land whence thou broughtest us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he hath brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are thy people. And thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by the mighty power and by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. And now we continue into chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said unto me, hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first and come up unto me into the mount and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first and went up into the mount, having the two tables in mine hand. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark, which I had made. And there they be as the Lord commanded me. And the children of Israel took their journey from Beeroth of the children of Jachon to Moserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And Eleazar his son ministered in the priest's office in his stead. From thence they journeyed unto Gadagada, and from Gadgada to Jotbath, a land of rivers of waters. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister unto him and to bless in his name unto this day. Wherefore, Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, according as the Lord thy God promised him. And I stayed in the mount according to the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also, and the Lord would not destroy thee. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, take thy journey before thy people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swear unto their fathers to give unto them. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching, the hearing, the understanding, the believing, and the living of this, his holy word. Well, this chapter is very similar to chapter 8, and I recognize it's, it's been a while since I've been in Deuteronomy. But just a quick review, it is a reminder not to forget. It's a significant call to remember and not forget. And we'll review what that was in more details but it's a similar thing today. Remember and not forget. Things about ourselves, remember and not forget. Things about Christ and ourselves in Christ, remember and not forget. In our text today, God makes sure that his people know that they are indeed going into the promised land. But despite the fact that he should destroy them for their unrighteousness, 
and only because of Christ's covenant of grace. And that's the same message for you and I today. That's the main message of the text I give to you. I'll repeat it. And that's the main message we need to get out of it. Nothing's changed. The same is true for you and I. You and I are no better than the world. We have no right to be on our way to heaven and, and have the hope of knowing we'll be in heaven. We should be destroyed because of our sins and rebellion constantly against God and of his Christ. It's only because of his mercy and his mediation that we can go. Again, here's the main idea of the text. God makes sure his people know that they are indeed going into the promised land, but despite the fact that he should destroy them for their unrighteousness and only because of Christ's covenant of grace. So we think of the five solas, and as we reviewed one of them this morning with finishing Dr. Richard Phillips' message in Christ Alone with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, what is particularly highlighted here today of those solas, as we would think about it, is Christ alone, grace alone. Now, the bad news is here, just as it is in the gospel. We're all sinners. All we deserve is eternal death. That's the bad news. That might paralyze us. Paralyze us to come to God and take grace from him. Or having that grace to think we can move but the bad news sets up the good news, which is to mobilize us, to help us move forward. God's message for you this morning from the text, persevere and proceed to the promised land by Christ and grace alone. If you look at your bulletins, I always give you in quotes the, the, the sermon title. That's the point of the text. There's not many points. That's the point of the text. That's what to take home with you and apply. Everything else is explaining and leading to that point to apply. Here is the point of the sermon for you this morning. Persevere and proceed to the promised land by Christ and grace alone. So we look at the bad news first. People don't like to hear this. What, what do most people say to us when we've done door-to-door -door evangelism over the years? They have no interest in coming to the church and seeking grace from God because they say, oh, I'm a good person. God's happy with me. He just wants me to be happy. Well, that's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of our text today. Here's the starting point. Christians, and that includes you Christians, this is the church being spoken to today. You don't deserve heaven. You will never deserve heaven. And you don't deserve any heaven on earth on the way there. Christians, you don't deserve heaven. Imagine a bride was caught in adultery during the wedding reception while the groom was in the other room sealing the envelope of the marriage certificate. And he comes back and he sees her in adultery at the wedding reception in a side room. He takes the ring off his finger and he steps on it. He throws it out the window. That's the focus of the text with the focus of Mount Horeb as central in verses 8 to 17. Let's read again, verses 8 to 17. Also in Horeb, now remember Horeb is the general area, Mount Sinai is the specific place. So he's talking about when they got uh, 40 years ago, uh, and they should have been here a long time ago, they got the Ten Commandments from God. Mount Horeb is referring, and, and we've seen that at the beginning of Deuteronomy. So in Mount Horeb, in Horeb, that is Mount Sinai specifically, ye provoke the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. 
When I was gone up into the mount to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant, which the Lord made with you, then I abode in the mount forty days and forty nights. I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them was written, according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount, out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten image. Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mount and the mount burned with fire and the two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and I behold, ye had sinned against the Lord your God and had made you a molten calf. Ye had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I took the two tables and cast them out of my two hands and break them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither did eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins, which ye sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, this is reviewing what's going on in Exodus 32, relating back to Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, after they get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, they say, we will be your people. You are our God. We will do everything you have commanded. And then he goes up to get these Ten Commandments in writing in stone. He comes down, and they have already violated their vow in blood. Remember, marked with blood. To be God's people and keep his commands, including the second command. They were already committing adultery against him, making this false idol, this molten golden calf image of Egyptian gods, most likely. They couldn't even wait to get to the honeymoon, you might say. They couldn't even wait to get the covenant sign, the tables of the covenant, before they violate them. Right at the signing of the covenant peace treaty, the golden calf is made. Moses, therefore, destroys their contract. That's what the Ten Commandments are, remember? Two receipts are given, one to the king, one to the vassal state. In this case, they both go into the ark where God's presence is directly with them. But it's a sign of this commitment together, this peace treaty. And it is the contract. And it's like he's ripping up the marriage certificate in front of them. It's like he's taking their wedding ring and stepping on it, burning it, and sending it away in dust in the river. That, you know, I don't know if you've thought about it. I never have thought about it. And when, even when I preach through Exodus, I don't recall. We might wonder, is Moses in trouble for breaking God's Ten Commandments, even though it's their sins? No, it is a sign as God's representative. You have violated our covenant. You are the bride of Christ, and you violated it. And so he throws the Ten Commandments down and crashes them destroys them as a sign that they violated the marriage covenant with their God before they even leave the wedding ceremony. 
That's why this is highlighted today. All the things that have come and come after this, you've always been rebellious and stiff-necked. But the epitome of it, look at this. You can't even get away from the wedding ceremony without being an adulteress. I really drive home the point. Don't you dare think that you are righteous and that you have any reason to think that you get to have the promised land and you're somehow better than the people there. You are just like them. J.G. McConville points this out. The memory of the formative Horeb event that is at Mount Sinai forms the backcloth to the whole narrative. Moses, notice this, Moses in the Hebrew, to me it seems a little more obviously violent, like when Jesus turns over the tables in the temple, my house, God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and he whips it up, makes a whip and whips them out and causing a ruckus. That's what we see here in the Hebrew, to me it seems more obvious. He is smashing the tablets. He doesn't drop them. As a sign to them of their wickedness before God and they're violating their marriage covenant, he smashes them in front of them. And then he steps all over them and he grinds them to powder till nothing. Now think about what this means. If the covenant is gone, you're dead. God will not be your God. You don't go to the promised land. You die in the wilderness like the people that did. And then he puts it in the river to go away. No covenant anymore. It's by virtue of the covenant they are in relation with God. This ought to put chills on their backs and make the hands hair stand on the back of their neck. That's what Moses is doing. Moses is smashing the tablet as a sign of their violating the marriage contract. And they are worthy of only being divorced by God and sending them away on their own into the wilderness to fend for themselves. With no alimony. Meredith Klein explains Moses' treatment of the treaty tablets and the golden calf was symbolic of the shattering of the covenant. Such ritual procedure is attested in ancient state treaties in connection with a vassal's violation of his oath. This is summarized in uh, verse 7 and 24. He, he gives this as the main central thrust. He explains a little bit before and after other examples. This is the main thing. But he summarizes it first in verse 7 of chapter 9. Let's look there. Remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt. Until you came into this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. From the time I first started to get you out of Egypt to this place where we're back to the promised land the second time, all you've ever been is a rebellious, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked has that idea of like a donkey that cannot be turned, won't listen, cannot be reasoned with, cannot be taught. That's much, much of Moses' ministry experience. This is the summary. Look ahead at verse 24. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. You've always been like this. Verse 
similar to chapter 8, 17 to 18. He says, don't forget God and think that your own might or your own wealth has gotten you this land and all your houses. Remember, the houses were built before you. All the vineyards were already cultivated. Don't think you had anything to do with any of this. It wasn't your might or power. It was the Lord's. Now, today, even more closer to home, don't think it's because of your righteousness. Don't think it's a right. Don't think you have any claim to this in your own selves. You are rebellious and stiff-necked. God has given it to you. You don't earn it. It's mercy, not merit. Now, he illustrates this in verses 22 and 23, also back in verse 7, with other examples of their rebellion. But the key central focus point that gets a lot of attention is you, you, you can't even be faithful to your husband before the marriage ceremony is over and the contract is brought back. And so this is what is said in Psalm 106, 24 to 25, that they are always rebellious, always going against the Lord. They're not getting the promised land because of anything good in them, you see. That's what the main idea here is in the text, starting with verse 4 of chapter 9, right? Don't forget, remember how you provoked God. You've been rebellious. Oh, that's verse 7, excuse me. Don't say in your heart uh, because of your righteousness, you see. Don't say in your heart that you think it's because of something you did. This ritual procedure of breaking the covenant is attested to in ancient state treaties in connection with a vassal's violation of the oath. All you are is a covenant breaker. All you are is an unfaithful wife, an adulterous wife. That's all you are. And it's really highlighted with uh, this review of Mount Sinai and their golden calf incident. Notice how quickly it's emphasized. Quickly get down there. Look how quickly. Look how quickly they turn from me and do this. It's like as soon as the husband's in the other room, got some other man in there. Look at verses 4 to 6. Here's, here is the application of all of this. Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 6, understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness... For thou art a stiff-necked people. And the illustration of Mount Horeb and the golden calf is you're an adulterous people. I should burn the ring. I should send you away. The point of it all again is they are rebellious. They are stiff-necked always. They're not getting the promised land because of anything good about them. The contrary, quite the contrary is what's being said. You're not going into the promised land because of anything good about you. You're wicked. You're rebellious. You're unrighteous. You're no different than the people I'm getting out of there. They're totally unrighteous, wicked, and should be destroyed. How many times am I going to destroy? If it wasn't for Moses, you'd be destroyed. Notice this consuming fire idea. 
Meredith Klein explains, for Israel to assume that Canaan was a reward for their righteousness would be an even greater contradiction of the realities of the covenant relationship than their boasting that the possession and prosperity of the land were an achievement of their might. Chapter 8, 17. Moses, therefore, passionately presented the truth that the promises and blessings of the covenant relation were Israel's by virtue of mercy, not of merit. And this is the message, beloved, still for the church, for each Christian, for all of you and for me. We don't deserve anything from God but eternal hellfire. And the problem is you and I in the world live as if we think we do. We murmur. We complain about God. We're not thankful. We make our demands. And we think we have a right. And we act like it. We don't deserve anything but hell and destruction forever. We get heaven, but not because of anything righteous about us. And the longer we're in the church, and especially if we've been raised in the church, we need to remember that. You and I are no different. And I want you to hear this really closely. Everyone, looking up right now, please. Here's what I want to make sure you all hear, and I need to be reminded of it. When we have people come onto our property, clearly not here for the right reasons, and are offensive in a number of ways, you and I are no different than them. But you and I think we are, and we act like it in how we receive them. Doesn't mean there doesn't mean to be qualifications and uh, dealing with some situations sometimes the way we should. But let us never think we're better than them. We are the same as them. There, but by the grace of God go we. And you and I need to be reminded of that. Because we think we're better, and we're just the same, if not worse. Earlier, again, remember not to forget you didn't get this place by your might. Now, do not think that you get it by your righteousness. Yes, the people before you go for being wicked, but you should just as much never be allowed in because you're wicked, he says. You all deserve to go to hell, including every Christian. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. And of course Paul's drawing on Psalm 14 verses 2 to 3. Also Psalm 53 verses 1 to 3. They are corrupt. God looks down on earth at everybody. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. To see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No not one. And you and I are included in that comment. This is the quote and summary of Paul's point in his opening chapters of Romans. Romans 3, 10 to 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There's not one human being on the earth besides the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't deserve to go to hell. Romans 5 verse 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
It's not likely that anybody that thinks so well of themselves and comes before God and worship and thinks of heaven as if it's their righteousness and they're good people, it's not likely that they'll be going to heaven because they're trusting in themselves when they should be recognizing, woe is me, I am unclean before a holy God. Titus 3, verses 4 to 5. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And go back to Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. But Titus continues there. It's not by works of righteousness that we have God's favor. He goes on to say, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christians, you only get heaven through Christ alone. Christians, you don't deserve heaven, only hell. Christians, you only get heaven through Christ alone. Sometimes a parent will say to another parent when a child is being pretty disobedient and difficult, your child did this. Notice that your son did this. A lot of times we're my child, your child too, right? Deal with your child. There's a distancing, in a sense, not only of responsibility, but of, it's almost like I'm done. And God does this in the text with his church. Chapter 9, verse 12, he says to Moses, your people. Look at that, 9, verse 12. The Lord said to me, arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people. For thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made them a molten image. They're your people. You see, this, this violation is so huge. This idea of the covenant sign being smashed to pieces in the Ten Commandments, in the tables of stone. Your people, you go deal with them. I'm done with them. As if to say they're not my children anymore. They're not my people anymore. I'm moving on. Let me alone. He says that. Let me alone. It's the mediation of Moses that reverses this, including the language. Look at verses 18 to 21. Moses mediates, and it's only because of a mediator interceding on the behalf of the people that God cha changes, so to speak. Verse 18 to 21, and I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights and did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins, which ye sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also the same time. And I took your sin, the calf which he made, had made, and burnt it with fire, and stamped it, and ground it very small, even until it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mount. Now look at verses uh, 25 to 29. 
Thus I fell down before the Lord forty days and forty nights, as I fell down at the first because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed therefore unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people and thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look not unto the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sins, lest the land whence thou broughtest us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he hath brought them out and to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. Notice God is saying, your people, you brought them out. You deal with them. And Moses is appealing to them. No, they're your people. They're your people, God. You brought them out. They're your inheritance. He's appealing to that. Now also notice the contrast of chapter 9, verse 15 with chapter 10, verse 5. I turned and I turned. The first turning is coming down to correct them. They have violated the covenant. Smash the tables of the covenant. He comes down, he turns down first to confront and correct off the mount. But the second time, he turns to convict and convert and confirm. Notice the Ten Commandments and the Ark. There they remain. They're not destroyed, they're not lost, but restored and kept safe. So the relationship in God's presence in the ark, the sign of God's presence remaining and the relationship remaining intact with him. Why? Because of his prayer. His mediatorial prayer. He prays for mercy for the people. He prays for mercy for Aaron. Notice, he doesn't pray, try to understand them. They're basically good. They try, they do a lot of good things. No, he says they are wicked. They are stiff-necked. They are unrighteous. He only prays for mercy. Not for their right or relationship remaining intact. Not for their right or merit, but God's forgiveness and his gracious continuation of the ministry of reconciliation with him. For God's ownership as your people, your inheritance. Again, notice verses 26 and 29 in contrast to 9, 12. Your people, your inheritance, your work of salvation, Lord. No, they're yours. They're yours. Don't give up on what you've done and whom you've made them. Whom he had redeemed. Notice, redeemed and brought out of Egypt. He did all this. So Moses also appeals to the promise made to the patriarchs and to their seed. Verse 27, be faithful to your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you don't keep the people going because you made the promise to their seed, Lord, don't let anyone call you a liar. Now, of course, the Lord is setting up all of this. God is good on his promise. He's always good on his promise, his covenant promise. And Moses appeals to God's own reputation. Verse 28, everybody's going to say that you couldn't do it and that you only brought them out to do evil to them. So notice the main appeal is your glory, Lord. Have mercy for your name's sake, for your covenant's sake. And God hears him, you see. He says several times, God hears him and relents destroying and leaving them. Beloved, this is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the prefiguration of the mediator you need before God who will otherwise send you to eternal hellfire. 
and destroy you where you belong in your sins and wicked rebellion, if not in Christ. You need the mediation of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the go-between between God and men, as spoken in all of Isaiah 53, including verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion for the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Because of our union in Christ, because of our union with Christ, as his people, the Father gave him. He doesn't lose one person, he says, that the Father gave him. It's only because of our union in Christ and his mediation on your and my behalf that we are not cast away in destruction from God. Asking for mercy as the go-between. Standing in the breach, as Psalm 106 said. Psalm 106, 21 to 23, discuss all their wickedness and sin and their only hope that they had a mediator. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Meredith Klein explains, they had repeatedly shown themselves to be a fractious, covenant-breaking people. They had been spared and preserved in covenant relationship to God only through God's merciful renewal of the broken covenant in response to the importunate mediatorial intercession of Moses. And Moses was the mediator, as Jesus only is for all his people. Now, you notice the 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus went through the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights. You notice, see the typological prefiguration there? Jesus lived perfectly unlike these people, unlike us in the wilderness. He doesn't respond to the temptation. He obeys so he can credit us with his righteousness and let that represent us before God. And on the cross, he dies to let his blood pay for our sin. So he can say to God and does say to God for you, because they are my people, because they are mine, because I delivered them, because I redeemed them by my blood, Father. I'm not saying they don't deserve to go to hell. We should send them to hell. But the son says to the father, because I redeemed them by my blood, because they're in my book of life, because we put them there and you sent me to save them. This is the mediation you have. Christ says, don't destroy them, father. They are the children of God. Don't destroy them. I've made them your sons and daughters. They are your inheritance. Don't destroy them. What will the world say about the church and about me, about the triune God? And again, look at me. And see them. First Timothy 2, 5 to 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You need that mediator. By the way, another thing to point out here is there's no other mediator. Nobody else but Moses was mediating. And nobody else but Jesus mediates. You need to go to God through Jesus Christ. You cannot go directly, and you cannot go through anyone else. 
Galatians 3.22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Beloved, also be encouraged by John 17, as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your mediator between God so that he asks for mercy and gets it for you. Be encouraged by John chapter 17. The whole chapter is a, is a prayer of Jesus for you. Not just the disciples, but those who would believe in him by their witness. Hebrews 8, 6-7, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, that is Jesus, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been fail faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. He bargains by his own blood, you see. Jesus bargains by his own blood, the better covenant. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Keep in mind the connection here. Mount Horeb, he's referring back to the way they acted at Mount Sinai. You, New Testament Christians, have come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the great assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You see, Christ's prayers give you not a lesser sentence, but no sentence of all, at all. Rather, a proclamation, not guilty, or even more innocent, or even better, righteous. Not outside of him, unrighteous. Wicked, but in him and his mediation, righteous, holy. And it's all because of the covenant of grace. Christians, you only get heaven by merciful grace alone. Christians, you don't deserve heaven. Christians, you only get heaven through Christ alone. And Christians, you only get heaven by merciful grace alone. Christ alone, grace alone are the main things being emphasized here because we're so wicked and unrighteous. The Bible often speaks of washing. And now that we've started reading Leviticus in the Old Testament, it reminds us the whole thing's about being washed clean from our sins and their effects. I want you to think about the dirt and grime, especially if you've been out working in the yard. That's when I'm pretty bad, especially because I like to work on my Crocs. I know it's ridiculous. And you come in with those dirty feet and all just wash all that dirt from the water, soapy water, just going down the drain. Off of me, gone down the drain. So your sins, so your wicked, adulterous sins. Because of Christ, because of Christ alone and not yourself, grace alone. It's all of grace. You are washed clean simply by the gracious blood of Christ. Notice this in verses 17 and 21. Moses, he takes the golden calf and he calls it their sins and he melts it and he sends the dust in the river down the mountain. He doesn't just destroy the Ten Commandment tablets. What else does he destroy? He destroys the sin itself, the golden calf. And he sends it in the river down the mountain. Dust, and you see it no more. It's gone. 
so beloved Christ does for you at Golgotha. He pulverizes your sin, stamping on them with his feet nailed to the cross. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, you will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head, speaking to Satan. He pulverizes your sins by his propitiation. Your sins flow away in his blood down the cross. They're no more, no more on you. As the scriptures say in the prophets, I don't remember your sins anymore. I cast them behind my back. I cast them into the depths of the sea. That's where your sins go, washed in the blood of Christ. Why? Because of God's faithfulness to his covenant. Look at verse 3, as the Lord said to you. God said this, verse 5, according to what God swore to their fathers. This is the Abrahamic covenant as renewed in uh, Isaac and Jacob. And all through the scriptures, he swore this is the covenant. Notice also the covenant is referred to with the, tab, with the, with the signs of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, chapter 9, uh, verses 9 and 14 and 15. It's all about the covenant. What is a covenant? It's God's promise. It's his agreement to be faithful even when you are not. He will not destroy the people because of the covenant. Though he should if they were outside of Christ. But he covenanted with them at Mount Sinai. And though they are so unfaithful and they're going to drive home, you don't deserve this promised land. Don't forget it. Yet, because God is faithful, he's a faithful husband. He is a faithful God. He stays faithful to his side of the bargain. He stays faithful that he committed to himself. He swore himself even before they existed. He swore himself to them at Mount Sinai. So he's faithful to keep covenant. He allows them to stay with him and he goes ahead and gives them the promised land, which of course is a type of heaven. So he gives you heaven, beloved, as you trust in Christ because of the covenant of grace, the everlasting blood of the covenant in Hebrews 13. First Corinthians one, verse nine, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. In contrast to your unfaithfulness, God is is faithful. And that is what the mediator appeals to. 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And as we know from Titus, he doesn't lie. He cannot lie. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Speaks of the blood of the everlasting covenant of your Savior, that great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everlasting covenant. Signed and sealed in the blood of the everlasting God incarnate. God gives you such mercy, beloved. Now what should really happen is you take in and internalize your wicked, rebellious, sinful nature outside of Christ. And then you think of because of Christ's mediation, the grace and mercy he gives you. He does not count your sins against you. Psalm 32 says, how blessed is the man who doesn't have his sins imputed to him. And uh, Paul draws that out in Romans 4. How blessed is the man who God does not hold accountable for his sins. 
Psalm 130, I believe it is. Lord, if you held our sins against us, who could stand? The rhetoric is no one. But you can stand in grace. That's what we saw last Lord's Day evening. You stand in grace. Pray for yourselves, beloved, and pray for one another in Christ. Don't say, Lord, remember them. Remember all the good they did. Say, I pray for them in Christ. I pray for myself in Christ. I pray this for Christ's sake. I pray this for your name's sake. I pray this for your goodness and your greatness sake. I pray this for your mercy's sake. I pray this for your covenant's sake. I pray this for your name's sake, for your reputation, Lord. And even more, I pray this because of such abounding grace. He gives you what you do not deserve. Himself. Christ. Heaven. Eternal life. Abounding life. Peace. Joy. The Holy Ghost and one another. If I can insert what we were blessed by this morning, Richard Phillips, in his message, Christ Alone, with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals this year, Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Remember that beautiful story he shared? A daughter in the church had sinned and was pregnant out of wedlock, and he agreed to marry them. And he wisely asked the parents, what color dress will she be wearing? Oh, cream or some off-color white. And he said, she must wear perfect white or I won't marry her. Yes, but she doesn't deserve. And he said to the father, and do you think you do? None of us come and approach our husband, Jesus Christ, except because of the white robe that he has put us, put on us, washed in his blood and blessed us with his righteousness. He gives us all of this freedom from your past. He gives you peace in your present and a glorious future home. And you don't deserve any of it. But here's the glorious thing. You can't lose it. You see. God threatens it, so you take him seriously, and you're concerned about it, and then he says it's not possible that you'll lose it because of the mediator, Jesus Christ, who gives you grace instead of what you deserve. Therefore, Christians, move forward toward heaven. And that's the thing we don't want to miss from the text, and I'm thankful for one of the commentators that drew this better to my attention. Move forward. Move forward. Christians, you don't deserve heaven. Christians, you only get heaven through Christ alone. Christians, you only get heaven by merciful grace alone. Therefore, Christians, move forward toward heaven. Got to remember the context and where we are in Deuteronomy. But think of this. That, that bride that was caught in adultery during the wedding reception. Hypothetical. And the husband sealing the marriage certificate in the other room comes and sees it. Destroys the ring. You violated this covenant before we even leave. Marriage is over. Before it begun. He pulls out a, another ring from his pocket with the same inscription of love and faithfulness bound in covenant written on the inside. And he puts it on her finger, on his knee. And he points, uh, excuse me, he points that point, puts that ring back on his finger that he had taken off. And he points to the finger that she is still wearing the ring. 
And that's why they're together. His faithfulness. Remember God gave a whole prophet to this, right? Hosea, be faithful to Gomer. Even though she continues to cheat on you and is wicked and adulterous and a prostitute, you keep getting her, you keep bringing her back. A real life thing to be an illustration of God with his church. And so imagine that man, after throwing the ring down to express what she has done, yet has another ring he puts right back on. And then he takes her arm and calls her to the music that he says, go on, start the music that they'd chosen for their wedding dance and sincerely and lovingly guides her out gracefully, graciously onto the dance floor and begins to dance the husband wife song. And she and everyone else would respond, how? Amazing. Amazing grace. I can't help but think of the Lemons wedding song for their first dance. Not that any of that happened, of course, but I get to love you. I never heard that song before. Such a lovely song. God is saying, I love you. And I think the bride, the church, you get to say in return, I get to love you. Simply because of the Messiah, the mediator, mercy of Christ and his mediation. Grace alone, I get to love you, God. You should send me down the mountain, but instead you send my sins down the mountain. And you restore the covenant sign. You see, God restores the sign of the covenant and marriage relations. Written again with his own finger and delivered again through his own mediator. Look at that. He threatened to destroy them. And the sign of going to destroy and no longer be married to them. The breaking of the Ten Commandments. But look what he does after the mediation. Chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. And come up unto me into the mount and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and went up into the mount, having the two tables in mine hand. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark, which I had made. And there they be. Listen to that. And there they be. As the Lord commanded me. Notice as the first in verses uh, one. And four, just like the first time. There's no Ten Commandments, don't worry. God calls me up. He's heard the mediation. I make two more tables and God writes them again. Nothing's changed. John D. Currid says the production of new treaty documents formed part of a renewal ritual in the ancient Near East. The depositing of the covenant tables in the Ark at Sinai confirms what we are witnessing is an intense uh, instance is an instance of covenant renewal. It's like he's renewing his vows again. We've looked at this earlier in the text. He's renewing his vows with his people. I'm still yours. The mediation of Christ, mercy, the request, my own honor. I'll be, I'm still faithful to you. And so he makes the sign of the covenant, the tables of the covenant again. So notice they journeyed onward. They journeyed onward. And the continuation of the priesthood continued in verse 8. 
Now remember, he's going to kill Aaron, but Moses prayed. And the high priest, which is the one who coordinates all of the sacramental, uh, sacra ceremonial, sacrificial system, how to be saved, pointing to Christ, all could be lost. But Aaron is spared. He dies later, and then Eleazar, we see in the text, his son. The ministry continues. And that's what we saw in Moses, Joshua, Eleazar. God doesn't leave them without the leadership. He doesn't leave them without his systems, pointing to Christ. But notice in verse 8, what else are they doing? Blessing them until this day, blessing them. Verses 6 to 9, just like number 6, 23 to 27, right before they started the journey to get to the promised land. God started, he's going to finish it. Philippians, right? The Aaronic blessing, the priestly blessing that Christ still gives to his people. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That comes through the priestly work of the sacrifices which Christ has fulfilled, both as priest and sacrifice. They're all pointing to. So he blesses you that way. And they were called upon to still get up and go. Look at verse 11. This is what we don't want to miss. And I stayed in the mount according to the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord would not destroy thee. Excuse me, that's verse 10. Verse 11. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, take thy journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give unto them. Wow. They almost... They're going to get killed and left for dead, all of them in the wilderness. But God preserves the church. The next generation are going in. I'm going to give it to them. Go ahead. Move forward. It's not just a matter of standing, hoping not to screw up and be destroyed. Move forward. Move forward and grow in grace. Move forward in God's mercy. Move forward. We are taking this somewhere. We're going to heaven. God will put you in heaven. God is bringing you to heaven. He is bringing you there, walking along the narrow way that leads unto life. Make progress along it. Don't let Satan keep you from walking forward, getting up again and walking in grace. And so they did. So they moved along. They will. And they did enter the promised land because of the Passover. They passed over. Verses 1 and 2. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day, to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyselves, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Notice, there's a proverbial saying, they're so big and scary. The, the, the word on the street is, nobody can defeat the children of Anak. But God says, he will, verse 3. You're going to go possess. Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them. He shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thy drive them out. Thou drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord hath said unto thee. You're going to do this because I will do it. Pass over. Move forward. And they would have been afraid to move forward. That's why they didn't go in the first time. <gasps> Numbers 13, right? They're giants. We're grasshoppers. We can't go in there. So they didn't. You go back to Deuteronomy 1, 28, Deuteronomy 4, 38, Deuteronomy 7, 1. This keeps coming up. These giant Anakim. So while you need to remember, you're not going to defeat them in your own righteousness, but I will for you in my righteousness. Verse 3. 
God alone will give victory over the Anakim and all of the people they will possess the land from. He will do it. They must know this. And so they need to cross the Jordan and they need to move forward in the promised land. They will enter in and they will continue their journey. And I appreciate Jamie G. McConville for really bringing this out. It isn't just stand still in God's grace. It's move forward in God's grace as he packs up the tent and says, let's go. There's times where he says, be still, unpack. There's a lot of times where he packs up the tent and you to pack up your tents and move forward. J.G. McConville writes, an important element is the fact that the parts of the section are precisely framed by passages that remind one of Israel's journey towards the land from a series of progression markers all these wicked things mentioned yet it's in progression to the promised land which shows that the issue of Deuteronomy's telling of the golden calf incident is Israel's fitness to enter the land the whole section is framed by a reminiscence of Israel's failure to enter the land which gives uh, the whole section is framed by that and it gives permission at last for the final approach and the final division records Moses' intercession, which gives permission at the last. The renewed instruction to make tablets of the covenant, the setting apart of Levi for ark-bearing duties on the way to the land, and the resumption of the journey of God's response to Moses' intercession. The themes of journey and command are very close here. The listing of such places evokes the opening words of Deuteronomy 1 verses 1 and 2, which set the journey itself at the stage for the action and thought of the book. His point is Deuteronomy is a reminder of things as they are about to move forward into the promised land. They've been walking around in the wilderness for 40 years and now they're back and he is confirming I'm still your covenant God. You are still my covenant people. Here is how you need to remember to live because of that as you're about to go in and you need to go in and I will go with you and I will do this and give you the victory and give you the land. Make progress. You're on a journey. Deuteronomy itself, remember, is a covenant renewal document as they're about to enter the promised land after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, not getting in the first time. It is covenant renewal and assurance to proceed and possess. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. With all the cloud of witnesses before you in chapter 11. Let, every, let go of every besetting sin that we could finish and run the race looking unto Jesus. Our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he says to you what? Follow me. Follow me. P.C. Craigie writes, the people and their predecessors had been stubborn in the past, but they must learn to yield to the graciousness of God. And his grace says, move forward. So today, remember, Deuteronomy is a renewal ceremony. And he says what Peter will say tonight, grow in grace. Make progress in grace. God has once again renewed his vows with you today. And he says to you, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Here's what you really need to hear. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And what wife doesn't want to hear that from her husband? Especially when she knows all the other women that are out there and how she is often not a faithful wife. Not perfect. But the husband says, you don't need to worry. 
I will never leave thee. I will never forsake you because of who I am as a Christian, because of who I am in Christ. God says it to you because I am Christ, the mediator. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Do you deserve it? Yeah. That's why you should worry about it. But I'm here to tell you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Because why he is Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Because why he is Emmanuel, God with us. So he reminds you today of the great commission at the end of the gospel of Matthew. I have all authority on, and power in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, go. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go, church, throughout the world. Yeah, not in your power. Take it over by the gospel in Christ's grace and his power, saying, we are unworthy sinners. Come join us in the merciful grace of Jesus Christ. Take it while you can. He closes saying, for lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. God's leadership of his people is always to and into the promised land. That's the point. The reminder is that it's all of him and nothing about you, but his unconditional election and sovereign grace. So don't ever pull this. A lot of people pull this in the church. Oh, I'm not going to try anymore. I'm no good. I can never be any better. I'm not even going to bother. I don't even know if God loves me. I'm just going to cower in my dark closet here. Move forward in God's grace. Make progress. Don't cower in your sins as wicked as they are. Conquer in Christ Jesus. Shed your self-righteousness, seeing you have been cleansed of your wickedness and given Christ's righteousness. And humbly move forward in Christ your Messiah, your wonderful mediator, your eternal God. He is preparing a place for you, and he is preparing you for the place. I'm borrowing that from another minister. Now make progress as you grow in grace, as pilgrims in this world by his grace. And in him you will persevere and proceed into heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And you who meekly trust in the Messiah for mercy as your mediator will graciously inherit the earth. Yes, not because of your works. Not because of your righteousness, but by his power, by his mercy, by his covenant faithfulness and righteousness. So move forward. Persevere. That's the P in tulip. Persevere. You will persevere because of his grace, because of his electing sovereign grace that has nothing to do with you, but his perfect plan in Christ. Persevere and proceed to the promised land by Christ and grace alone. That's the message for you from this text, and I thank you for sitting through a long text, therefore a longer message. But this is the message for you, and I hope you see this is the gospel. I encourage you to remember and mark it to share it with others as you go and make disciples of all nations, knowing Christ is with you. Persevere and proceed to the promised land by Christ and grace alone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. We can't go in our own, our own unrighteousnesses, 
our filthy rags. We're not worthy of the least of all your mercies. We cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But then you remind us that this is the man that went justified away before God. Crying for mercy, acknowledging we're sinners. Thank you for saving us, O Lord Jesus. You tell us, you do not condemn us, and you call upon us to go and sin no more. And make disciples. Make us your light to the world and salt to the earth. Brighter and more savory and more healing. Lord, work through us. Work your gracious power through us. Cause us to be merciful as we have mercy. Cause us to forgive as we have been forgiven. And what of a powerful witness that will be. Recognizing we all deserve sin and hell. Let us be quick to recognize to everybody passing by, walking on our campus, who we interact with, that we deserve to go to hell just as much. And you can just as much come and have the grace of God in Christ alone and go to heaven by grace alone. And it is the only way. We pray to you, Lord God, trusting you who hear our prayers through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying for our sin and being our perfect righteousness and having the ministry of unceasing priesthood, unceasing intercession in heaven before God, where our lives are hid with you at his right hand at your throne. So let us make progress with the peace of God, because we have your propitiation. Let us know we will persevere to the end. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in Christ and by grace alone. And all your people said.